This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Federal spending is a trillion-dollar problem, and while Congress should address it directly with substantial cuts, there are some opportunities to begin to, at the very least, put more spending through a regular budget process. Cato's Romina Baccia explains. The schoolhouse rock version of how money gets allocated and spent is almost totally wrong. And that's been the case for how many years? Gosh, Caleb, over over the past 40 years, Congress has followed the budget process, I think, twice. For most spending, it doesn't follow that, that process. There's a, a large chunk of spending, a little over half, where Congress followed the process at one point, but that might have been decades ago. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those programs were put in place by following that model of passing a bill and authorizing the program and then appropriating the spending. But uh, since then, they've been allowed to grow on autopilot. But there's another aspect of spending, discretionary spending, where co- that Congress is supposed to vote on every year. And there we've seen more continuing resolutions than actual funding bills. And they usually are late. And Congress likes to mix several items together. Um, There's supposed to be 12 individual spending bills. They like to pass an omnibus where they stick them all in one package or a so-called minibus where they at least combine a few of these uh, harder to pass bills, some that Republicans will like more, some that Democrats will like more to try and get them past the finish line. And then there's a whole another category of spending that they like to call emergency spending that in many cases is no such thing that's even further out of the budget process. And we're trying to shed light on that category, which is much larger and has been growing in a way that most legislators are almost completely unaware of. Leaving aside the totally normal spending that circumvents the budget process, they've gone over and above that to create a special category, emergency spending, which double super does not follow the normal process for uh, uh, approval. What kinds of things do we typically see categorized as emergency spending? Very common categories include funding for natural disasters like hurricanes and flooding, but also for wildfires. And some people might say, okay, maybe that is legitimate emergency spending. Those tend to be unpredictable events that uh, can often have large-scale impacts on the communities that are affected. And when those impacts are large enough where it's bigger than an individual state can handle, it might make sense for the federal government um, to step in there. But that is by far uh, not the largest category of emergency spending. Shortly after 9-11, Congress established a new emergency spending category just for defense spending. It was called OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations. And that became basically a massive 
open-ended slush fund for military spending for the the war in Iraq and then also other purposes where when in 2011 Congress adopted spending limits over the Defense Department and also discretionary spending more broadly, um, OCO really blew up and you saw legislators using that category that was meant for war-related expenditures that were at one point seen as um, temporary, but turned out to be uh, much more permanent than that because it went on for, I want to say, over a decade before we got rid of that category, where Congress was just shifting other defense priorities into that OCO category because that was not um, restricted by spending limits. It was, uh, therefore, a way to just spend more money and claim that you're still within the budget that Congress had agreed on when clearly you were not. And so uh, we really saw a massive blow up of emergency spending for all kinds of things during uh, the COVID pandemic. That was a very good example of the mantra, never let a good crisis go to waste, where Congress spent uh, somewhere between five and seven trillion dollars, depending on how you count it, to in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Everything from increased unemployment checks to um, uh, federal aid to the states and localities, some of which Congress is trying to claw back now because much a lot of that money actually went unspent or went towards fraudulent or wasteful purposes. We provide a a list of examples in one of our recent Cato papers on that. And so that was one of the largest emergency spending sprees we have seen in uh, in U.S. history was for the pandemic and the amount of uh, fraud that occurred um, within that um, is is mind-blowing and uh, absolutely reckless given uh, the fiscal state of, of our nation. If Congress woke up tomorrow and were suddenly serious about emergency spending and reining it in, it's hard for Congress to tie a knot that a future Congress can't untie. And for the most part, we don't necessarily want them to do that. But for changes in terms of trying to make sure that emergency spending actually is emergency spending, there are reasons why the the feds might want to spend a bunch of dollars that were not budgeted. But if you wanted to tighten up that process, what might that look like? There's a couple of ways. So one is we actually do have a very well-defined definition of emergency spending that was established by the Office of Management and Budget in 1991. It's a five-part test that's inclusive. It's an and test, not an or. And that includes that uh, anything that qualifies as emergency spending should be necessary, sudden, urgent, unforeseen, and non-permanent, and all Five of those criteria should be met. So something very simple that Congress could do is that when they designate something as emergency spending, they should include in the accompanying report for that appropriation um, where they specify how much they want to spend, how this particular spending meets that five-part test. And if Congress actually went through that procedure, either a lot of items that they currently designate as for emergencies would no longer qualify, and we might actually see some spending restraint, 
or more likely, we would get some very humorous <laughs> explanations for why uh, something that is clearly not responding to an emergency is an emergency in, in, in Congress's mind for the purpose of spending more money on it. And at least then we could hold Congress accountable. And we could also call out uh, ridiculous explanations that we might we might see there. Um, that will be a simple change. I think one of the most effective ways, though, to rein this in is to stop treating emergency spending as if it's a free lunch outside the budget where we can just, you know, borrow the money, print the money, whatever, create it out of thin air. Because unfortunately, that is how Congress is treating emergency spending now, which is one of the main reasons that they exploit that category more and more, especially when they're otherwise subject to, say, discretionary spending limits. It becomes very tempting to designate all sorts of things as emergency spending. For example, an increase in FBI salaries, that is clearly not an emergency. That should just be part of the general budget if Congress agrees that that is necessary, that they just designate those items in order to get them out from under the spending limits that they agreed to so they can spend more. And so one way to address this is to make emergency spending subject to those spending limits so that Congress has to consider trade-offs. Another way of dealing with this, based on the example of Switzerland, which has the Swiss debt break, which is basically a spending limit uh, for the Swiss government based on their revenues and based on the, the growth in their debt and how the economy is doing. It's a very sensible spending limit. And what they do for emergency spending is um, that they just pay it back over the following five or six years. So if Congress says we need to spend, you know, a hundred billion, say for example, like they're talking now about spending more than a hundred billion to support Ukraine and uh, some other initiatives that Congress wants to put emergency money behind right now. If they wanted to spend that money this year, then over the next um, five years, they would have to reduce their budgets by 20 billion each to pay back the 100 billion they want to spend this year. So that's that's one way to say if you can't find offsets for the spending today, if you really can't come up with anything in the budget to cut in order to fund um you know Ukraine or any other priorities that Congress might have, then let's make sure to pay it back over time. That would be, you know, one step in the in the right direction. And lastly, I have some other reforms we could talk about as well, but we need more reporting from government agencies about emergency spending, because before we here at the Cato Institute put out our report detailing uh, more than 30 years of emergency spending, there was really no number that you could cite for how much Congress spends based on this category. There's no regular reporting on this. So just even having the Government Accountability Office or the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, include emergency spending in their annual reporting, I think would go a long way to bring more attention to how big of a category this has become and how much abuse we're also witnessing in this category. Most people are not aware how much we're spending, and we identified that we've spent roughly $12 trillion since 1992, which if you compare that to a current publicly held debt, what we've borrowed in credit markets, it's about 43% of our current debt. So arguably, emergency spending is a major driver of uh, past debt growth. One reform that you mentioned in a re recent blog post is simply raising the threshold to vote on 
emergency spending. Uh, in in one case, a proposal put forth by Mitt Romney would have raised it seven votes in the Senate, which is to, to, from three-fifths to two-thirds. That doesn't seem like a lot, but it certainly gives the profligate spenders a little more difficulty in trying to secure the votes that they would need in order to spend off-budget. Yes, I think that is one other uh, mechanism. I am afraid, though, that you might find that there is more (laughs) bipartisanship when it comes to voting for extra spending (laughs) outside the budget that I question that how much harder it would really be to clear that voting threshold. It's worth trying, though my preferred uh, method would be to say, okay, let's raise the voting threshold and let's also require offsets to say, okay, you want to spend that money, okay, let's make it a little harder, make sure that you take a close look and get enough support to actually spend that money in excess of the budget that's that you've already agreed on, which, by the way, is a deficit-funded budget as well. It's not like l- we're living within our means. And every additional dollar Congress adds in emergency spending is, by definition, going to be new deficit spending. And when we have a deficit this year of about $2 trillion going to $3 trillion over the next 10 years, as our, our debt is as large as uh, the entire U.S. economy and is going to break record levels that we haven't seen since World War II in the next few years, that maybe we should be more fiscally responsible and we should not increase deficit spending anymore, uh, that even for emergency spending, we should find spending cuts either immediately, preferably, of course, because we can't trust Congress to actually make future spending cuts happen, but at least agree to the requirement that there should be future spending cuts if we can't find them today as uh, just one step closer to recognizing that emergency spending costs money and uh, adds to the deficit. It's, it's just not a free lunch the way in which Congress likes to treat it. Romina Baccia directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.